Um, I do want to persuade you this morning to maximize your gospel ministry. Uh, God gives to all of us two kinds of ministry in life, creation ministry and new creation ministry. We can worship God in all of life. We have opportunities to serve him in our daily walk of life as we contribute to the good governance of creation. But once we become followers of Jesus, he also gives to us new creation ministry, gospel ministry, all of us, in different ways, in different places. We all have gospel ministry, and I want to encourage you to maximize your gospel ministry, for its rewards are eternal, and the stakes are very high, as we shall see. But you might say to me, or you probably won't say to it because you're polite, you might think, yeah, but you get paid to say that. You're a minister. It's your job to tell us to do that. Blah, 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 blah. I'm always the clergy standing up here. They're always banging on about maximizing our gospel ministry. Thankfully, we get to go home from church and carry on with our lives. And you might well be wondering, why should I bother? Why should I make any special effort to maximize my gospel ministry? As the person I am, with the relationships and the circumstances in which I live, why would we maximize our gospel ministry? And I want to tell you that the answer is here in this passage, as in many passages of the scriptures, and it all begins with God. Mission doesn't begin with zealous pastors. Mission begins with God and his character. And here in this passage, it's an ancient passage, we read of how God revealed himself to the prophet Isaiah. Just a word about reading the Old Testament. If you don't know, the Old Testament is the promise, the New Testament is the fulfillment. So the whole Bible is progressive from beginning to end. There are three reasons for that. One is that behind the many human authors who wrote the different books of the Bible, there's one divine author governing them all, who is the Spirit of God. And behind the various covenantal historic periods traced through the Bible, there's one overarching story, that is the kingdom of God. And behind the many characters and prophets, priests and kings and others throughout the Bible, there's one supreme hero, and that is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole book is a unity, progressing from Old to New Testament, from promise to fulfillment. And so we read in this ancient part of Isaiah, where we're learning things that were written for our learning today. And here in this passage that was, uh, I'm about to read to you, we read of how God revealed himself to the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century to show him and through him to us something of what he is like. So if you have a Bible, then do open it please to Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's on page 691 in the church Bibles. And if you're not used to a Bible, that's absolutely fine. It's so great when there are visitors here at church. And you can always use the contents page at the beginning. That helps you. Or indeed, if you didn't know that, you can download a Bible app and use it on your phone. It's brilliant. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled, robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. I just want to take you through the words of this passage and show you what they mean. In verses 1 to 4, we find that the prophet Isaiah encountered God's holiness. And here in this stage of the book, God reveals himself to Isaiah in a vision in the temple because Isaiah needs to know what God is like so that he can tell the people of Israel what God is like and we need to know what God is like because we need to tell the world about what God is like. And so in verses 1 to 4, he encountered God's holiness. Well, let me just tell you what it means. In the year that King Uzziah died, well, that was the year 740 BC. Uh, king Uzziah had been a great king. He'd reigned for 52 years. Uh, he'd built a lot of buildings. He was a powerful uh, leader. It was kind of the end of an era. He got very proud towards the end of his reign and he'd been struck down with leprosy. But it was the end of an era. And so if you were a, a Jew living in, in Israel, uh, it was a pretty frightening time. There was a changing of uh, world leadership. Not unlike the time we live in at the moment. With the new president of the United States and, and there's... Um, Putin in, in, in Russia, and there's anxiety around the world about what this means, isn't there? The world is an unstable place, it feels, at the moment. And so into this instability, Isaiah is reminded of who is in charge over all the kings and presidents of the world. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw an image of him, a vision of him, and he was high and exalted. In other words, he's huge and splendid and glorious. Seated on a throne. That is, he's the king. Notice that he's seated. He's not having to fight with the devil. He's not having to struggle with anybody. He sits in unrivaled, unqualified, absolute power. As the reigning king over all kings and presidents. And the entire universe is at his beck and call and under his control. He's seated on a throne. There is no battle between good and evil. It's been won on the cross and God sits in unrivaled authority and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now the temple is a big place. Uh, I, I think it's about twice the height of this space here 
And so even seated on a throne, the train of his robe, that is the cloak on his back, filled the entire temple space. Now, of course, God is too small to squish into the universe of countless billions of galaxies because God is, is too big to squish into any space. It's just demonstrating how huge he is. The supreme being, the living God, is, is bigger than anything you can possibly imagine. It's beyond, he is beyond what our finite minds can imagine. That's shown by the scale of, the, of this seated king. And above him, as an expression of his glory, are some of his creatures, angels called seraphim. Uh, literally meaning fiery ones, presumably inflamed or on fire with the holiness of God, often symbolized in the Old Testament by fire. And so hovering in his presence, imagine the sky filled with this uh, army of burning creatures like soldiers ready to do his will. And they've got six wings. These are really strange creatures. With two, they cover their faces, a Hebrew way of of expressing reverence because nobody stares at the living God. Nobody stares at the living God and, and has a look. You hide your face in fear and wonder before the presence of God. With two, they covered their feet, an expression of shame, for even though they're burning in holiness, compared with the absolute purity of the living God, they hide their feet in shame. And with two, they're flying with power, just hovering, ready to do his will. Isaiah has been showing something of the glory and the splendor and the power of the supreme being. And they cannot, cannot remain quiet. And so they're calling to one another. And they're calling out these words, holy, holy, holy. It's, it's a Hebrew way of saying holiest. And that is, he's unbelievably holy. He's, he's uniquely holy. He's the holiest. He's beyond anything you've ever seen or imagined before. And holy means special, uh, unique in his purity and his goodness. And so they're crying out. He's amazing. He's holy. He's the holiest thing we've ever seen. The whole earth is full of his glory. You think of the oceans. You think of the mountain ranges. You think of the teeming cities. You think of the technology. The whole earth, every part of it, is an expression of his glory because he enables everything in it. And they're not quiet. This is not whispering. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook. The whole place is shaking with the volume of their shouting. And the temple is filled with smoke. The smoke of sacrifice, perhaps, but in the Old Testament, uh, often the Shekinah cloud, which, which uh, uh, surrounds the presence of God to protect people from the destructive purity of God. If you're sinful and unholy as we are, in the presence of the living God, you can't survive. And so there's this protective cloud to keep people safe in his presence. And this volume is so loud, the place is shaking. Unless you think this is just an Old Testament thing, and it's all calmed down since then, you go to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 4, and you find that they're still singing this song. They're still on the chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty because the living God is so unqualifiedly beautiful, so, so enthralling, so amazing that people who live in his presence are constantly overwhelmed by him. You know, it's like being at a, at a sort of concert or something and, and, and you're sitting with a friend next to you and, and, and on the stage, you know, the band are playing. I mean, I don't know, you were watching TV the other day, seeing the Dire Straits concert, concert, the Alchemy concert. What a brilliant concert. Imagine being there. Shut up. He's amazing. Shut up and trying to listen. And that's what's happening. People are in the presence of God. These beings are in the presence of God. And he's just amazing. 
um, it's a long story, but um, back in uh, 2012, uh, there were these, the, the, these games. I know you've got the Highland Games, but we had a little thing called the Olympics down in London. It was 2012 Olympics. And uh, long story, but I managed to get a few tickets. I actually thought they might have been false, so it was kind of really difficult. I got so much grief from my wife for this. But anyway, that's another story. So I managed to get four tickets, and I took three of my kids. And on this Saturday evening, and I looked beforehand, and, and Mo Farah was running, and I thought that should be good. And uh, there were a couple of other finals, and I didn't think much about it. Anyway, we turned up, and they were there. And it turned out to be Super Saturday. All right? We were there. In the, in the Olympic Stadium, when Mo Farah and their Greg Rutherford and um, uh, Jessica Ennis all won gold medal, medals in 46 minutes. I, I love telling the Australians, because the Australians don't even know what gold medals are. They, they win, you know, I try to explain to them, a gold medal is something you get when you win an Olympic event. Don't worry. Keep, keep trying. One day it'll happen. Anyway, I was, we were there for 46 minutes. Sorry, we were there for the whole evening. It was just, the volume was insane. I couldn't even hear myself think. We've actually got an iPad. My, my daughter's next to me, screaming her head off. And, and it was just the most glorious, extraordinary experience I've ever had in sport. The, the, you know, it was so loud, it was inside your head. You could not hear yourself think. But at, at the end of it, I said to my, my daughter afterwards, I said, if this is what it's like for somebody who can chuck a spear and jump a long way and run around a track for a long time, can you imagine what it'll be like when the King of Kings walks on stage? I mean, it's just going to be insane. With billions of people gathered in the presence of the King of Kings. Imagine what that's going to be like. And the Bible says, no one can stay quiet. People just call out and sing of the praise of God. How wonderful to be there as one of his people. How dreadful to arrive there as one of his enemies. And John chapter 12 quotes from this passage and says, Isaiah wrote this, because he saw Jesus' glory. This is the glory from which, which Jesus came to earth and to which Jesus has returned. Is that not amazing? So the first stage in the commissioning of a prophet the first stage in encouraging any of us to evangelism is to encounter God's holiness. Have you begun to understand yet how amazing God is? That leads to the second stage in his experience. He recognized his sinfulness. Verse 5, woe to me. It, it means literally, I'm damned. He says, I'm ruined. I'm collapsed. I'm rubble. I'm a heap. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In other words, here is the prophet of Israel. He's supposed to speak. He's supposed to use his lips for God. And he, and he encounters the holiness of God and he thinks, oh my goodness, I can't do this. I'm nothing before this God. I'm a bunch of rubble. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That is to say, my mouth is filthy. I'm filthy. 
And it's not just that with a bit of therapy and help I could become unhealthy, unfilthy, because he says, I live amongst the people of unclean lips. We're all filthy. It's a, it's a Bible way of describing the corruption of our hearts, that we never speak anything with pure motives. Everything we do is corrupted and spoiled by our selfishness and our selfish motives. I mean, maybe you're different, but it's true of my life. Everything I do has this selfish tinge to it. It's spoilt by my selfishness. And he says, now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he's thinking, I'm ruined. I'm totally sunk. Now, it may be that you're here this morning and you're somebody pretty big. Compared to the rest of us, you're pretty amazing. Maybe you're the CEO of a huge company. Maybe you're a member of the Scottish Parliament. Maybe you're the pastor of a big church. Maybe you're the grandmother of a big clan. And everybody else thinks you're pretty special. Maybe you think you're pretty special. Can I just encourage you to remember that when you stand before the living God, you will feel as nothing. And the color will drain out of your face and you'll think, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm ruined. I've got nothing. Look at him. Now we're all different in this way. I think it's, it's sometimes healthy, healthy to remember that the way we do filthiness uh, varies quite a lot. Let me tell you a story to try and uh, illustrate. Imagine two teachers coming to um, teach at um, some excellent school here. Uh, Edinburgh Academy, is that a good, good school? Okay, uh, let's pick a couple of names for them, these two guys. First teaching post, let's call them just for fun, randomly, Paul and Liam, okay? So um, these two teachers, Paul and Liam, come to, to teach at the Edinburgh Academy, and they're looking for somewhere to stay, and it's very expensive in the city. So they look in the, in the, in the paper, I've no idea what your local paper is, and they see, you know, there's this mansion for rent. And uh, it's, you know, uh, 40 acres of beautiful woodland. There are stables, there are wet rooms, there are uh, two wings of floors, there are, you know, uh, uh, glorious reception rooms everywhere, and it's just, you know, an extraordinary mansion. And the owner is a Russian billionaire, owns a football team or two, and uh, he's going abroad. And anyway, these two teachers, uh, Paul and Liam, look at this, and they think, well, you know, it says here, £10 a month. Uh, and so they, they knock on the door, sure enough, yeah, it's £10 a month, I come on in, I'd like to show you around. You know, they're just absolutely blown away by this place. He said, listen, I don't need the money, but I do need someone to look after my estate while I'm gone. I'm away on business for a couple of years, so I'll, I'll stay in touch with you, I'll send you emails and so on, and uh, it looks like you to stay in touch, because it is a complex estate, you'll need to know how to run the place. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's £10 a month, don't forget your rent, it's not much, but I'd like you just to remember to, to honour me in that way, and then um, I'll come back in a couple of years and see how you're getting on. Enjoy the place. It's a wonderful estate. So the owner um, uh, heads off, and the two guys take over. Now, of course, Paul is a party animal. And so he takes over the North Wing, and pretty soon there are all-night raves, and uh, all his mates are in, and, uh, you know, there's cigarette marks on the furniture, and there's vomit on the carpet, and there's beer on the walls, and, you know, there are, there are travelers who are staying, and, and, and soon the whole place is trashed. And everybody's thinking at the place, thinking, oh, you know, when the owner comes back, Paul is going to be out in his ear because he's trashing the place. Liam, of course, is a completely different person. He's tidy and well brought up. And so he takes the south wing and he moves in. And of course, he's complete in, in bed by 9 p.m. every night. And, um, you know, he just polishes the brass handles and um, 
uh, licks the, the, win the windows clean, and um, you know, he wears pajamas with turnips, and he irons the turnips every night before he goes to bed, and he has you know, labels on his CDs, and uh, he is so unbelievably uh, uh, polite and, and tidy and well-organized, everybody thinks, well, when the owner comes back, I mean, Liam's gonna get, run the whole, the whole place. And to everybody's shock, when the owner came back a year later, he threw them both out. Now, people, no one was surprised about Paul being thrown out. He trashed the place. Everyone was shocked about Liam because Liam was so well behaved. And to anybody who bothered to ask the owner, he explained. He said, listen, I know they lived very differently. But they both treated me exactly the same. Neither of them bothered to listen to any of my emails. There was absolutely no response whenever I tried to get in touch. Neither of them paid even the tiny rent I asked of them. I think they must have thought I was an idiot. Or maybe they thought that I died and don't exist anymore, or something. But they can't stay if they're going to treat me like that. And you'd have to say, fair enough. Now, I tell that story because it describes for me the different ways we treat God. We live in God's world. There are many beautiful things to enjoy in this world. Some of us have trashed our lives and it's full of wreckage and we know we're in trouble with the living God. There's hurt people, there's damage everywhere. We know, everybody else knows. But there are others of us who've been brought up so well, we're so tidy, we're so polite, we're so well brought up, we're so middle class and acceptable that we cannot imagine why God would have any problem with us. And yet we've treated him with a complete lack of respect. We don't read his word. We don't give him the worship that is his due. We think he's very lucky to have us interested in him. And in those circumstances, he'll say, I'm sorry, you can't stay. So can I encourage you, don't be fooled. Just because other people have trashed their lives more than you have, that everything's fine with the living God. See, when the prophet Isaiah fell before the Lord, he said, I'm ruined, I'm, I'm, I'm rubble, I, I'm crushed. And so will you and I when we stand before the living God. Well, there's the second stage. First stage then, he encountered the holiness of God's holiness. Secondly, he recognized his sinfulness. Do you recognize your sinfulness yet? You will never understand what the fuss about Jesus is until you genuinely understand how seriously you're in trouble with the living God. But now Isaiah is ready for the third stage in his commissioning. He experienced God's forgiveness. What a glorious experience this is. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Can you imagine the scene? So one of these flying fiery angels peels off like a strike bomber, flies down towards him, picks up a coal, that is a, a burning coal from the, from the altar in the temple with some tongs, flies straight toward Isaiah. He must have thought, I'm it, this is it, I'm dead. And instead he touches the coal against his lips. Verse 7, with it he touched my mouth and then he explained it and said, see this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What's all that about? Do you see what he's doing? Isaiah had confessed his particular sin of speech as a prophet. He knew he's filthy. And so the coal from the sacrifice is applied directly to his sin. And then the angel explains 
Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Now, do you understand what he's saying? You see, the, the temple sacrifices were always only illustrations of the sacrifice to come when Jesus died on a cross in the first century. Let, let me explain. I mean, lots of people can't work out why, why Jesus died on a cross. You know, Richard Dawkins, the, the atheist writer, says it's you know, repellent and sadomasochistic. And it's madness. Uh, and of course, Muslims say it's blasphemous. But the, the Bible says, actually, it's love. Let me explain. You see, what hap- what's happened is, despite everything that we've done, God, amazingly, still loves us. I mean, and it just doesn't make any sense, and yet he still loves us. And he actually loves you. And he even loves me. And so what he's done is, the great supreme being has shrunk himself down into an ordinary bloke called Jesus. Why would he do that? Seems absurd. The answer is, so he could swap places with ordinary people like you and me. He had to become an ordinary bloke walking around Jerusalem, walking around Galilee. You know, five foot ten, our brothers and sisters like football. He had to be one of us. So that he could swap places with us on the cross. And there he was treated as if he was us. And punished for all the filthiness of our lives. So that we can be treated like him. And accepted into heaven as children of God. He swapped places with us. Very simple. See, he was treated as us and punished. So we can be treated as him and accepted as children of God. Sons of God. Inheritors of heaven on our way to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Somebody somebody once wrote, for God to allow a sacrifice is grace. For God to provide the sacrifice is amazing grace. For God to become the sacrifice is grace beyond our understanding. He actually became the sacrifice himself. Uh, I don't know what that does for you. I mean, let me try and explain. Um, A couple of years ago, uh, New Year Awards, the story came out about a a soldier in the Second World War called um, Bombardier Robert Key. Have you heard about Robert Key? He he was in the Second World War, and um, he was taking some time off during the war. He was given some time off, some leave. He traveled down to the south of France towards Anazin, and he got blown up by a grenade. And the British Army report of his death said that he was fooling around with the grenade and blew himself up. And the family were incredibly embarrassed about such a stupid way to die. And so he was rather forgotten from the family history. Until the mayor of the local town where he was wrote to the family and said, we'd like to name one of the central streets of our town after Bombardier Robert Key. We hope that would be okay. They were astonished. And finally, the true story came out. He had been blown up by a grenade because... As he was wandering through the village, he saw that some kids were playing in a field where there was some unexploded ordnance. And there was a little boy who grabbed a grenade and unknowingly pulled the pin. And he charged towards them, yelling at them to run for their lives. He grabbed the grenade, took it into his guts and got blown up. And in so doing, saved all those kids. And that's why he's a hero. Not the fool that everybody thought. And I wonder whether there might be some of us can't work out what the fuss about Jesus is. You know, died on a cross in the first century. Lots of people died on crosses. What was the big deal? Sounds like a rather stupid end to a promising prophetic career. I mean, how did, he, how did that happen? 
And then finally, you realize, oh my goodness, he didn't die because he was being foolish. He died for me. He died for you. He died instead of you on the cross because he loves you and me. It's just astonishing. And I don't know whether lots of people tell they love you or whether nobody's told you that for a very long time. But let me tell you, with the authority of the Bible, God loves you passionately. And that's why he took the blast into himself on the cross, so that we never have to ourselves. And because of that, everything's been sorted, everything's been dealt with on the cross. And so the angel says, because of the sacrifice, you see, this touch your lips, so your guilt is taken away. You know, if there's a great big file on the heavenly computer with all your sins, and it's a great big, fat, horrible, stinking file, God has just pressed delete, and your guilt is gone. You know, if your phone has got all that horrible history on it, God has just pressed delete history, and it's all gone. I mean, how good is that? And more than that, he says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That is, Jesus has satisfied the Father for our sins. Satisfied himself on the cross. Isn't that amazing? God is satisfied. He can welcome us as his children because Jesus swapped places with us on the cross. And because of that, Isaiah can be forgiven. How can I tell you, if you don't know what this experience feels like, this is such good news for you today. You can be forgiven. Do you know what you need to do to, to qualify to be a saved Christian? You just have to be a sinner. Even I can manage that. It's really easy. If you're a sinner, Christ died for sinners. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. So if, you, if you're you know, a perfectly good person here, then you don't need a saviour. You'll be fine. But if, like me, you know you're a filthy sinner and you need a saviour, there is one. And he's died for you on the cross. How good is that? Because that's the third stage. He experienced forgiveness. And so as a result, look what happens next. Then, having encountered God's holiness, having recognized his sinfulness, having experienced God's forgiveness, now he's ready. Verse 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? You want to know what does God talk about in his spare moments? You know, what is on the mind of God? What is he talking about all the time in heaven? And the answer is, who will, who will I send? Who will go for us? Because God's supreme consuming passion is the salvation of the lost. So it says, who's going to go? Who's going to reach the lost? That's what I'm looking for. I don't care how big your, your church building is. I don't care how many people come to your church. I don't care how many ministries you run. I want to know who's going to go reach the lost. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah puts his hand up and says, here, here am I, send me, I'll go. It's wonderful, isn't it? Why? The filthy prophet is now sticking his hand up saying, well, could you use me? Well, I do. And look what God says. And he said, you go and tell this people, you go. Now, of course, he tells him what to say. He, he, Isaiah doesn't have to invent it, doesn't have to make it up. And in fact, you read the rest of the chapter, it's about judgment, and then right at the end of verse 13, 
A holy seed will be the stump in the land. There will be salvation through a descendant of David, whose name is Jesus. Go and tell the world that there is a judgment to come when the sins of the world will be dealt with by God and there is a saviour from that judgment whose name is Jesus. He said, go. And of course, that's fulfilled in the New Testament in Matthew 28 when Jesus says to his disciples and indeed to all his followers in every generation, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and tell this people. And who is the person who puts their hand up? The answer is the forgiven sinner. If you're not a forgiven sinner, you won't want to go. Do you see the stages? If you're here this morning and you you don't want to go and tell people about Jesus, then it's probably because you haven't experienced forgiveness. And if you haven't experienced forgiveness, that's because you don't realize how sinful you are. And you don't realize how sinful you are because you haven't seen how, how holy God is. Mission begins with God. Once you see how holy God is, then you'll see how dreadfully sinful and filthy you are inside. When you see how filthy you are, then you're ready to experience the forgiveness of God. And when you've experienced the forgiveness of God, then you put your hand up and say, I'll go. Let me tell somebody, let me tell somebody about this Savior called Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet uh, a believer... And perhaps this is the first time you've, the penny's ever dropped and you suddenly realise, oh my goodness, he died for me. Not just for other people, he died for me. What a wonderful morning for you. And what you need to do is to speak to God. I can't do anything for you. Paul can't do anything for you. Talk to God yourself in the quietness of your heart and simply say, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry for the way I've treated you. It's appalling. It's filthy. Sorry. It's only right to apologise. Thank you. Thank you for becoming an ordinary guy to swap places with me on the cross. Thank you for doing that for me. Please, please forgive me and help me to serve you from now on. Sorry, thank you, please. You've got to pray that prayer. Get saved this morning, sort your eternity out. The rest is detail. Will you do that? Can I encourage you to do that? There is a saviour who loves you. Why don't you pray that prayer and ask him to forgive you. Sorry, thank you, please. It's not difficult. For those of us who are believers, can I encourage you to stop being a spectator and to get on the pitch? Next week, Calcutta Cup, Twickenham, Scotland, ahead. Sorry, let's speak more realistically. Scotland, behind. All right? There's five minutes to go. You're two points down. The Calcutta Cup is at stake, and you're on the side of the pitch. And the coach says, get on and play. And you say, well, what do I do? What do I do? And he says to you, I don't care. Just get on the pitch. We could win this thing. Get on the pitch. Stop watching. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying in Matthew 28. There are so many of us who are believers who come to a nice church like this and it's so lovely being a Christian and it's so nice to be here. And if the Lord Jesus was here, I'm sure he'd say, stop being a spectator, get on the pitch. I don't really care what position you play. Maybe you need to become an apprentice and train in gospel ministry. Maybe you need to become a pastor. Maybe you need to give some of your wealth to train the pastors and the apprentices. Maybe you need to become a street evangelist. Maybe you need to start a Bible study. Maybe you need to evangelize your street. I don't really care. Just stop spectating and get on the pitch. Tell people about the Saviour. 
I mean, the wonderful thing about living in modern Western cities like Edinburgh and London is that we're living on the mission field. You no longer have to go to the mission field, or that's a great thing to do. We live in it. Because most of this city is going to hell at the moment. They're going to meet the, meet the living God who we've met this morning, unforgiven. And Jesus says, meeting the righteous living God, unforgiven, is like living in fire. It's like arriving on the surface of the sun without a spacesuit on. That is to say, you're arriving in the presence of a holy God, unforgiven. You don't want to do that, says Jesus. Please don't do that. So the wonderful thing is for those of us, for example, who work in offices tomorrow, depends how you see the situation in Edinburgh. I want to tell you it's fantastic because probably you could arrive in your office tomorrow and over here there's a Muslim, then there's a couple of atheists, then there's a Buddhist, then there's a Roman Catholic, you know, then there's a Satanist, and then there's another atheist. It's fantastic. Almost every conversation you have over the water cooler is an opportunity to say something about how you follow Jesus. You know, any lunchtime chat, any after-work drink, the opportunities are endless. What a wonderful place to spend your life. Surrounded by unbelievers who don't yet know about Jesus. What a great time to be alive in Edinburgh. And for this congregation, what a, what a wonderful history you have here of proclaiming the gospel. But you want to live in the past, do you? Now, I'm a, I'm a visitor. I've got no right to say anything. But I look at this beautiful building. I think this is stunning. You've only got two congregations in it. I can't work that out. It's, it's empty for most of the day. So you, you've got to multiply disciples. You've got to multiply congregations. And you've got to multiply churches. This is a church that could do that. By God's grace, we've gone further with much less. You can do that at this church. Now, it's none of my business. You're the elders here. But I don't work here, so I can say what I like. I want to encourage you, make the most of the opportunity. Make the most of it. As I finish, let me tell you a story. Imagine that I just go on and on and on for hours and hours, and it gets dark outside, okay? And you finally walk, stagger out of church and you wander back to the street where you live and to the house where you live or the flat or the apartment or whatever it is. And as you're walking past one of the, one of the houses, you probably can think of one of them, you see that downstairs, oh my goodness, the, the curtains are on fire. And it's obvious what's happened. There's, you know, there's plastic tricycles everywhere. The family's gone to bed upstairs. Somebody's dropped a cigarette uh, from, you know, it's fallen off the ashtray or whatever. And, and the downstairs is on fire. And you can see now the carpet and the, and, the, and the sofa's on fire, and soon the whole flat's going to be on fire. What do you do? Well, that preacher went on forever, that bloke from London. You know, I need to get home. Some, somebody else will call the fire brigade. I, I wouldn't want to disturb them. I mean, you know, you know, they're asleep upstairs. They wouldn't want to be disturbed. You know, they might, they might be angry with me. They might be offended if I wake them up. So I, I better just walk on past. You know, you know, and I do lots of things at church. I do lots of things at church. You know, I do my bit. I'll just walk on by. Can't do everything. You don't do that, do you? Don't you run up to the front door. Your house is on fire. You need to get out. Shut up. Leave us alone. We're asleep. No, 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 no. You need to come out. Look, stop bothering us, will you? 
no, 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 please, please. I'm really serious. You've got to get out. Bring your kids. Get them out of the house. The house is on fire. Now, you do whatever you can. Let me tell you, when you go back to your street today, your whole street's on fire. Your whole street is on fire. Almost every house has people in it who are going to hell because no one has ever explained the gospel to them in language they can understand. Now, I don't know what you have to do. You know, maybe it's that you, you organize a summer barbecue and invite everybody on and give your testimony. And maybe you organize a Christmas drink, so you invite the vicar along and, and, and he gives, explains what Christianity is all about. Maybe you drop a leaflet into all the doors and invite them to church. I don't know what you do, but the one thing you don't do is nothing. You cannot be a human with any love in your heart and walk down your street and ignore all those people. The living said, God said to Isaiah, go and tell this people that there's judgment and a saviour. Let's bow our heads and pray together.